0: Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from the Young Turks, Rachel Maddow, and On the
1: Media.
2: So, we're going to have fun in this hour, and when you talk about fun, of course, you talk about torture. So... On with us is Stephen Miles. He's a doctor, and he's also the author of Oath Betrayed, Torture, Medical Complicity, and the War on Terror. How are you doing, Dr. Miles?
3: <laughs> totally cheered up by that. Thanks a lot.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, look, we've been looking forward to doing uh, this interview for a while, Dr. Miles, because we first of all, we want to ask you some uh, something that's... Uh, Something that you mentioned here, I want to get back to what we actually did do in Iraq and Guantanamo Bay, cetera, that you talk about extensively in the sh- in the book. But first, tell us, does torture work?
3: Torture does not work. It's been studied up the wazoo. It's been studied more than most drugs in the United States have. It's been studied by uh, more than 200 studies by the CIA uh, in Project Kubark. It's been studied by the British, the Israelis, and torture does not produce good information.
2: Why is that? What do the studies conclude?
3: What the studies show is you find out what uh, what you want to hear. For example, we tortured a guy, we took him to Egypt, we tortured him, and he told us, Uh, that uh, Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda were cooperating on uh, bioweapons. That's what we wanted to hear. We took that to the UN. That became part of the rationale for going into Iraq, and it wasn't true. Uh, We also uh, are uh, sending our guys on, uh, according to one marine interrogator I talked to recently, he said, we're sending our guys off on these dangerous wild goose chases, chasing down bad information that we've gotten from torture. The other thing that torture does, a different way of not working, is it radicalizes the population that you torture against you. And we've seen that certainly happen in Iraq as well.
2: Well, Dr. Miles, I disagree with you. I, I, according to that story you just gave there, torture does work. We wanted false information so we could uh, invade Iraq, and we got false information so we could invade Iraq out of the wonderful torture that Dick Cheney authorized.
3: <laughs> You're a hell of a guy. <laughs>
4: uh, Dr. Miles, it seems uh, uh, the, the, that that all sounds correct, but. Wouldn't it hold true that that someone who did have pertinent your your explanations would work uh, would seem why torture would not work on somebody who didn't have the information? But wouldn't somebody being tortured at some point pony up the relevant information?
3: No, that's not true either. That's been uh, studied as well, uh, and I wish it was so. Uh, But uh, uh, people who do not want to talk uh, become, uh, in the words of the uh, Army Interrogation Manual, uh, more sullen and less likely to give up the information the longer that you torture them. Uh, One of the things that torture does is that it tends to radicalize the person you're torturing, and it ratifies their sense that you are an enemy, and so that uh, they may succumb by releasing uh, uh, a kind of information that is related to but actually quite wrong, uh, such as the wrong date of uh, the plan of an attack
4: um, What about uh, what is the you know the the twenty four the television show argument which has obviously exposed more Americans to torture than, uh, than and by the way you 're talking to two people who love the show but but are very curious about its its effects on the national psyche regarding torture what in twenty four at the very least. The kind of torture generally exhibited on 24 is your, what seems very unlikely to happen in this endless and expanding war on terror, is the ticking time bomb theory. There's a girl, she's buried alive, and we have an hour to reach her. We know you're the guy who took her. Tell us where she is. Does that kind of torture work in those rare circumstances?
3: Well, first off, the uh, police uh, or uh, soldiers rarely know that a person has a specific information uh, that they can obtain from a particular technique uh, that they can immediately act on.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, I've looked at every instance which the United States claims they had a ticking time bomb scenario. Uh, for example, there was one where they said they tortured this guy who revealed just in time this plot to hijack uh, eight, or to put bombs on eight trans-Pacific airliners and blow them up in flight from uh, the Philippines. Uh, in fact, we got information on that uh, plot from his laptop. The data that he supplied by the harsh interrogation was false.
4: Well, what about, though, I mean, that, I understand. I'm talking about, like, it's already happened. The crime is that the bombs are on the plane. We need to know what plane. I realize this is all this is Hollywood. I don't. Yeah. I, I, I concede that the likelihood of this happening in real life is unlikely. Jenkin, I used to talk about you're a small-town sheriff and a girl's been abducted and this sadistic killer is buried or somewhere. Is it, it, Forget whether it's ethical to torture him uh, is it uh, is uh it li- is he likely under torture in that circumstance where you know you got 60 minutes to play with and torturing him after that is irrelevant is you he know, likely to reveal relevant information under can, torture
3: you can make up hypotheticals but for example the israeli supreme court recently when they were asked to, to legalize torture in israel um, they told their security services look we're willing to consider this, but you got to come up with some case in your own vast experience of working with prisoners where you have defused a ticking time bomb with torture. And if you do that, then we will take seriously the possibility of legalizing torture in Israel. And the security services could not come up with one case and so with that Israel abandoned torture.
2: So we're talking to Dr. Stephen Miles, he wrote the book Oath Betrayed: Torture, Medical Complicity in the War on Terror. So
4: Dr. Miles, you're saying the show 24 is unrealistic. <laughs> Is that what I'm hearing it's, from Yeah, it's TV <laughs> But lab. I don't do get it.
2: I, I don't get it. Why would they do it? Why would Jack Bauer do torture if it wasn't going to work?
3: <laughs> well, okay, Jack now. Bauer is selling cereal. But um, oh. no, Doctor Miles, let me ask you a
2: serious question. Yeah. Uh, you know, if the weight of evidence is on this side, and the military, uh, the United States military uh, believes that and agrees to that, and they counseled Rumsfeld and others to not do this, as we see from inside sources that they did. And, you know, you have the Israeli court saying there's not a single instance of it, et cetera, et cetera. This is overwhelming evidence. Uh, why do you think they did authorize it? What did they think they were going to get out? Did they just, in their arrogance, feel, oh, they know better than the weight of uh, in the entire United States military history?
3: That is a great question. And you know, what happened apparently was this. Rumsfeld set up his own interrogation service inside the Army. He bypassed all of our traditional uh, interrogation experts. Uh, the FBI was horrified at what he did. Stansfield Turner, who's a former uh, CIA director, called vice, uh, called Cheney the vice president of torture. Uh, in fact, the resistance to this is coming from inside the CIA and the highest levels of the FBI, which has told them to stand down and stand back when the Army goes off and does this. And uh, Major General Fay did an investigation of this operation and said that the people who were in charge of implementing this program of harsh interrogation uh, were uh, largely untrained in uh, doing interrogation techniques. They were simply trained in how to apply the Rumsfeld harsh interrogation policy.
4: We're talking to Dr. Stephen Miles. He's written Oath, Betrayed, Torture, Medical Complicity in the War on Terror. Let me ask you, i got a couple questions, but first let me hit on what you just mentioned, the former director of the CIA, Stansfield Turner, uh, and uh, he did call uh, Vice President Cheney the uh, the Vice President of Torture, but she, on, on, in an interview that I saw that, uh, that Stansfield Turner did, he acknowledged that under questioning from whoever he was on with, uh, some uh, cable talk show host, that, uh, yeah, we have uh, engaged in torture in the past, uh, but Turner said it was significant that when we engaged in the past, it was isolated cases. And it was wrong. We were clearly breaking the law when we did it. And that it's different now to sort of turn that torture to sanction it, uh, if you will, under sort of uh, under, uh, you know, under the now all of a sudden, it's sort of vaguely legal or at the very least confusing.
3: Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, one of the things that we've done here is we've taken down a system of international law that we use to protect dissidents in other countries. We'd go to China, for example, we'd say, you can't treat this person this way because of the Geneva Accords. Now we do this, and what China says is, you've got to be kidding. You're you're preaching at us about the Geneva Accords, and we've also lost a protection for our own POWs.
4: Um uh, Dr. Miles, I ask this question a lot when we have guests on and it, it seldom works so I'm going to I'm going to try again Please do uh, Yeah thank you very it's much It's like
2: Torture doesn't work, but we right. keep trying it anyway. Well,
4: yeah. I'm going to ask you to put yourself in the uh, – to play essentially devil's advocate uh, with yourself. You've given us we, – we you know, Jenk asked, and you said it was a terrific question of why Rumsfeld did it. I want to know because the when when those who argue for this, what they would call coercive in, interrogation techniques, when they argue for torture, they don't just say, hey, we got to be tough they cloud themselves in an an argument that I fail to understand or that uses maybe false statistics. What is the argument to torture? Not why did they do it, but what is that argument as best you can understand? In in writing a book to sort of uh, expose the truth about torture, you must have been exposed to the argument on the other side. Sure.
3: I think the way to understand torture... And this applies to many events in our own, in our own history, too, that occurred uh, during the Jim Crow period uh, in the way that police departments uh, have and still have, still uh, uh, treat people from some communities, is that torture basically arises in the context of a society whose politics are blighted by extreme uh, uh, or, uh, dehumanization. And that once you do that, you create special categories of people who are seen as uh, meriting treatment beneath standard uh, legal rules. And you do that for uh, a number of reasons. First off, you just feel that they flat out don't deserve uh, uh, ordinary uh, uh, humane treatment. Uh, But also you feel that uh, because they are dehumanized, uh, the only thing that they'll respond to uh, is uh, uh, radically abusive uh, treatment.
4: But are there studies that... that, that, that contradict what you were maintaining that torture does work are there and you obviously would think those studies are wrong or flawed but are there is there a counter argument to torture doesn't work
3: i went and looked for i went and looked at all the studies of torture that i could find and of all the studies uh that i could find which obviously does not include uh i presume some studies remain classified right uh I can't find any study showing that uh, torture worked. Now I will say this: that in uh, Algeria, fought a war for independence against the French. Okay, mm-hmm. there's a French general who wrote a, a book called "Battle for the Casbah," in which he claimed that by torturing people, he was able to get some information, advanced knowledge of torture or of uh, terrorist attacks. But nevertheless, most historians feel that in the battle for uh, Algerian independence. The use of torture by the uh, French radicalized the Algerian uh, people against the French. And so whatever uh, tactical advances were made in a couple cases if they happen, and nobody's been right. able to confirm what this general said, they were more than offset by the strategic loss of a radicalized and, Algerian population.
4: And you would also also maintain that in a given case where torture might work, you're going to have 10 cases where it doesn't work and it's going to send you in the wrong direction anyway.
3: Well, that's it. And also, you have to remember that on the prisoners in Iraq, for example, by the Army's intelligence's own assessment, uh, somewhere around 85% of those patients are ignorant uh or innocent of all al-Qaeda or insurgency uh, engagement.
2: well Well, you know but sometimes have you seen any studies that show when you torture innocent people that you get wonderful results from it
5: what about those
3: studies yeah yeah, if you torture innocent people they will tell you their address (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, look you know my common sense tells me just to round uh, that uh, portion of it up and we're running short on time here but my common sense tells me is look in some cases clearly if the guy is guilty he's going to feel the pain and he's going to tell you uh, you know where the body buried or where the bomb is ticking or whatever it is but it appears that the large studies show that that is a rare amount of the cases and that most of the time they give you misleading information and when you uh, put together the fact that they are also radicalizes the population against you it winds up being grotesquely counterproductive for whatever small advantages you might gain in the rare instances that you might have the guilty person and that it might work
3: yeah well another way of putting it though would be that what torture does is it induces the innocent to confess to anything and the hardened criminals uh, to resist you. And so that actually it pulls information out of the wrong people.
2: Oh. Right. That's a great way of putting it, too. Real quick, last question for you, uh, Dr. Miles. And Dr. Miles wrote the book "Oath Betrayed, Torture, Medical Complicity, and the War on Terror. Let's talk about that medical complicity. Uh, do you think that uh, the, some of the doctors that worked with the United States military uh, violated their oaths and, uh, and did the wrong thing here by working with them?
3: Docs are frontline human rights monitors. Uh, they are there in prisons where the Red Cross never gets to. Uh, if they didn't see the abuses themselves, uh, they uh, saw the signs of the abuses. The docs were, uh, com- were silent to the degree to allow this system of abuse to persist uh, over a two-and-a-half to three-year period before it finally became disclosed.
2: So uh, they should have stepped up, and they should have talked, and instead they didn't, probably just to protect their jobs.
3: Uh, That's basically
2: right. All right. Dr. Stephen Miles, author of Oath Betrayed, thank you so much for joining us on The Young Turks.
4: Yeah, thank you, Doctor. Thanks.
0: Essentially a unanimous vote. The U.S. Congress passed a bill, and the President signed it, uh, called the War Crimes Act, the War Crimes Act of 1996. This law says that the U.S. government will prosecute war crimes committed, uh, committed, committed by or committed against any American. Uh, the man who was instrumental in getting the War Crimes Act passed in the U.S. Congress uh, is a retired Navy pilot named Michael Cronin. Uh, he fought in the Vietnam War. He spent six years as a prisoner of war in the in the so-called Hanoi Hilton. Uh, this is a man who, who knows a thing or two about war crimes. Mike Cronin joins us on the phone from Massachusetts this morning. Uh, Mr. Cronin, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Happy to do it. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, what led you to get involved in uh, in lobbying for the War Crimes Act in, in the 90s?
5: Well, uh, I went to law school late in life. Uh, I, I have been working as an airline pilot, and of course, as an airline pilot, any day can be your last day at work. And I was concerned about what I might do in later years if my company ran into trouble. So I went to law school at night, and while there... Uh, since I had been a prisoner of war, uh, I did some research on war crimes, and the prosecution of war crimes. Uh, my nightmare was that what if I ran into a North Vietnamese who had been uh, working in the Hanoi Hilton who had somehow managed to get into the United States as a refugee or a, a whatever, and uh, I recognized him, uh, and what would the law say about that situation? And the answer was, nothing. He would walk. Mm -hmm. And so I I made it my goal to change that, uh, and I wrote some papers on it while I was in law school, and later on, uh, when I was working on Capitol Hill representing my fellow pilots before Congress, I made it my private goal to find somebody who would work on that legislation uh, with me. And uh, that's when I met uh, Congressman Walter Jones of North Carolina, who introduced legislation in the House, and the rest is history. The the law did eventually pass.
0: What's interesting, too, is that, I mean, when the U.S signed, you know, ratified the Geneva Conventions, which was in the 50s, right? Um, yes, 1956. 1956. Uh, Geneva
5: Conventions are the 1949 Geneva Conventions. They're ratified by the United States Senate in 1956.
0: And when every state that ratifies them was supposed to pass a domestic law, that to, you know, obligated by having ratified the Geneva Convention to pass a domestic law that makes them enforceable. But until you started lobbying for this, the U.S. had gone 40 years without ever doing it.
5: Uh, And I did a lot of research on that, and uh, when the Senate was considering ratification, uh, Attorney General Brownell... uh, working under President Eisenhower testified before the Senate that there would be no constitutional reason why the United States could not pass such legislation. The senators were concerned about that. Uh, So then there was a discussion in committee, but no legislation was ever introduced and the subject never came up again uh, until I brought it up. Uh, In fact, the hardest thing I had to do in working for the legislation was to convince people that there wasn't already a law because the first thing that came into their mind was the Nuremberg tribunals. And you had to explain to them, well, we couldn't hold those tribunals today. It's a wholly different situation.
0: Wow. And the the thing that has become controversial very recently um, about this law that passed in 1996 is that what it did was it, it granted U.S. courts the authority to convict any foreigner who committed a war crime against an American, but it also said that Americans can be convicted of war crimes if they violate the Geneva conventions, and the way that it's written does that mean any American anywhere whether or not they're in on u s soil or whether or not they're a member of the military does it does it matter does it say
5: uh no, it does not say uh and that was uh very early in our discussions uh with the uh people who actually drafted the legislation for congressman jones what uh, there was a concern well, you know we can't. Write a one-sided law; it has to be two-sided to those Americans who commit crimes and to Americans who are victims of crime. And I said, well, you can't really object to that, can you? And so that we went uh, ahead with that. And uh, of course, people who serve are serving in our military are already subject to the UCMJ and would have been punished for committing war crimes under UCMJ even before this law was passed.
0: UCMJ is the Uniform Code of of Military Justice, the military justice system, right?
5: Absolutely. And that was one of the reasons why people said, well, why do we need this? We have the UCMJ. And, well, what about some other people? And... Uh, If a U.S. serviceman uh, is released from service, once he's released from service, the UCMJ loses jurisdiction. So uh, there there are various reasons why uh, the law closes uh, some major gaps, primarily against uh, war criminals who uh, victimize Americans, but the other way as well.
0: Right. And so the reason that this is – Become, it, being raised again and being try, attempted at least to be revisited by the Bush administration right now is because clearly they're worried that uh, U.S. servicemen who are who have left the services, people who are acting on behalf of the United States but aren't in the military, people, for example, who work for the CIA or who are interrogators or people in the civilian chain, chain of command who order things that are found to be war crimes, who order people in the military or other parts of the government to commit what something that is viewed to be a war crime, that those people should be prosecuted um, under this under this law, and that 's after the Supreme Court ruled that the, you know you can 't exempt people from the geneva conventions that 's freaking them out that people in the administration and, and in the chain of command in, under under bush will will find themselves subjected to these prosecutions
5: that 's correct in fact, if you read the uh, internal memos which have now been released and you can find them on the internet. That uh, the administration used in their internal debate on how to handle the detainees, uh, the War Crimes Act was one of their concerns from the beginning, and it's one of the main reasons why they uh, attempted to classify these people as being exempt from the Geneva Conventions, because they didn't want the War Crimes Act to apply to themselves or anybody below them.
0: They were already thinking about that in 2002 when they said, the, oh, by the way, Geneva doesn't apply.
5: Yes, that was one of the factors that led them to that decision. It's
0: hard. It's hard for me as an American to. Um, um to swallow the idea that my government recognized that it was probably violating something called the War Crimes Act and already trying, already making plans in advance to squirrel out of it uh, as early as 2002. I mean, I don't. Um, I, I'm curious as to how you feel about the efforts right now by the Bush administration to try to soften up this act or change the statutory interpretation of it, uh, given that you were so instrumental in getting it passed in the first place.
5: Well i wouldn't want to see it uh, softened, but uh, what is perhaps useful, in fact definitely useful, is to uh, make it more specific. Uh, Right now, the way the Act was written on the advice of the staffers who were working on it in Congress at the time, it's very general in, uh, it simply says the Geneva Conventions apply and those who violate them and other laws of war are subject to prosecution. Well, uh, one of the administration concerns, which is legitimate, is, well, what exactly are we talking about? What crime? Uh, and they what i think the dialogue that's going on now in congress uh There was a hearing yesterday before the Senate Armed Forces Committee and the subject was raised extensively, okay, what exactly are we talking about? We need to flesh out this law and make it more specific. Uh, Of course, there is room for mischief there. Uh, They could try to exempt themselves from uh, things that they've done in the past or what have you, Uh, but there is also a very useful dialogue that's going on.
0: Do you ever feel like um, the issue of the vagueness of the Geneva Conventions has ever been a problem for the the United States before uh, this current fight, before this current uh, Justice Department in particular, it seems to me like that's not been a major international concern until all of a sudden we've decided that, uh, that, that, that fighting terrorism is unworkable unless we nail down all these things that have never needed to be nailed down before.
5: Well, uh, yes, that's true, but here's why it's true. Uh, <clears throat> our opponents on the battlefield have never honored the Geneva Conventions. So sure. it isn't a matter of specificity and nuts and bolts. It's a matter of they simply refuse to apply them. That was the case in North Vietnam, North Vietnam also being a signatory of the Geneva Conventions. They simply said, well, no, it doesn't apply to you. You're a criminal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, uh, because we are a very legalistic society, and these things will wind up passing through our courts. Uh, there is legitimate concern. We have to have some nuts and bolts here. What exactly does this mean? What does that mean? Define torture. Uh, what is what is degrading uh, uh, or to- treatment? You know, some of these other terms. Uh, there might not be an adequate trail of cases which would enable a judge to decide, well, has there been a crime committed here or not? Yeah. I mean, and the, so, yeah. th- there, there's room for mischief in this discussion, but it's also a useful
0: discussion. The thing that's so hard for me is not to accept that the people who are fighting are not following the Geneva Conventions. It's that we might be choosing not to follow the Geneva Conventions. They've been trying to declare that they don't apply and now trying to make sure that they're not held liable for violations of them. It's, uh, it's a very, I see it as a very troubling development. I'm uh, grateful to you for, for talking to us about it today and also for your work to get this law put on the books in the first place. Thanks, Mr. Conan.
5: Yes, indeed. Thank you. I'll be happy to speak to any time.
0: Thank you very much. Michael Cronin is a retired Navy pilot. He was shot down uh, over Vietnam in 1967. He spent six years uh, in the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, He himself was a victim of war crimes. He was tortured in the Hanoi Hilton. uh, When he came back and went to law school later in life, he's the man who lobbied a one-man band lobbying to get the 1996 War Crimes Act put on the books uh, in U.S. statutes. The Justice Department under President Bush right now trying to change the statutory interpretation. Of that. Um, In my analysis, uh, because they want to make sure that they don't get prosecuted for war crimes for violating Geneva.
1: is still feeling the aftershocks of the disclosure last December of a vast National Security Agency domestic wiretapping program. More than 20 lawsuits have been working their way through the courts, and the government has often defended itself with the most reliable weapon in its arsenal, the state secrets privilege. Essentially, that's when the government claims that it would have to reveal state secrets if the case went to trial. That handy tactic has shut down many, many cases against the government since 9-11. So it came as a surprise last week when a San Francisco judge rejected the state secrets privilege and ruled that a case against the government and AT&T related to NSA wiretapping could go forward. Jonathan Turley is a professor of public interest law at George Washington University and a lead counsel in a federal case looking into the NSA program. He says that until now, the state secrets privilege has served the government as an almost impenetrable Shield from legal scrutiny wielded in ways its creators never intended. You know, the Supreme Court
6: said that not all classified matters should be subject to this privilege. This was supposed to be a very exceptional thing to dismiss a case on this basis.
1: Now, a case was dismissed in Chicago on Tuesday because of the state secrets privilege. But surprisingly, as we mentioned, the privilege didn't work in San Francisco. So what happened?
6: It really was the factor of the judges. You have a judge in San Francisco that said, look, I just don't buy your argument that simply forcing these telecom companies to confirm or deny whether they gave you a lot of information would bring the republic to its knees. The judge in Chicago adopted a much more deferential view to the government and, frankly, a view that's more consistent with other courts. He just simply said, look, I have this declaration that says that national security would be injured. He seemed to indicate that he. He wasn't quite confident of that, but said that he had to go along with what the administration
1: said. So let's talk about another case, the Supreme Court decision on Hamden, which found that the government did not have the right to try Guantanamo detainees in secret military tribunals. You say that this decision has the effect of bolstering all the cases now pending against the NSA wiretapping program. Why?
6: Well, the administration has been arguing for years now that when they were given authority by Congress after 9-11 to go after the perpetrators of that, that it gave the president absolute authority in eavesdropping and handling of detainees and enemy combatants. And many of us have questioned that and said, that's just not the case. This is a very narrowly defined resolution. And in fact, the senators rejected broader language. Well, it still gave them an argument. They could say, People can disagree, but this is the authority that we believe is clear. Well, the Supreme Court rejected that and refused to read into it this type of broad authority. Now, when it did that in Hamden, it virtually cut away the legal claims used to defend the NSA operation. Now, what that means is hard to overstate because some of us believe that the president committed a federal crime when he ordered not once but 30 times
1: the renewal of this program. So into this patchwork of legal cases working their way through our courts enters Pennsylvania Republican Arlen Specter, (laughs) chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He said in an op-ed in Monday's Washington Post that the surveillance program was, quote, a festering sore on our body politic and said that he held... Fierce, torturous negotiations with the president and came out with a major breakthrough. Uh, you don't think so. <laughs> the Spectre cheney compromise would remove these
6: cases challenging the NSA operation to a secret court called the FISA court. This secret court was designed to approve warrants for searches. It's like taking Marbury versus Madison and sending it to a traffic court. It is absolutely preposterous to send a massive constitutional case to that court where opposing counsel is not allowed in the courtroom. So the government doesn't have any opposing counsel. If the government wins, no one can take an appeal. And moreover, Spectre would allow the government unlimited chances to tweak the program until it passes review in the secret
1: proceeding. But Spectre's justification, as I read it, is that if all these cases were to proceed in court, the government would invoke things like the state secrets privilege, and basically they would be shut down anyway. So at least this way, the president has a place where he can feel comfortable being scrutinized. Well, the problem
6: with Spector's defense is that this is a case where the so-called do-nothing Congress actually should do nothing because you have various cases that are very close to a final opinion on the legality of the NSA operation. What the White House, what they fear is that now that the Supreme Court cut away their legal authority, they may be looking at a public opinion that says the President of the United States has violated federal law Spectre takes great pride in the fact that he was able to get the president to agree that he could be subject to some form of review. The interesting thing is that the Spectre bill doesn't actually require the president to do it, it just says the president can do it. Well, you know what? In our system, he doesn't get to choose. These programs are already being reviewed by the courts.
1: Specter wrote that without knowing the exact contours of the NSA program, it's impossible to say whether the president is right or wrong when it comes to his authority, but that three federal appeals court decisions suggest that the president may be right. What's he talking about? Are the courts tending towards this expansion of presidential authority or now, against it?
6: No, those are decisions that spoke very generally about the president's inherent authority, But most of us do not believe that those are either controlling or, in some cases, relevant. I think what Senator Specter is trying to do is to say, I really didn't get snookered as much as people think I did. uh, We could lose this. Well, you know, it's a very telling thing when not a single attorney involved in any of this litigation thinks that this is a good idea. All of them, as far as I know, have denounced it uh, as a terrible mutation of our system. Part of our constitutional system requires a certain leap of faith. You don't know if you're going to win. But there's only one rule that is absolutely essential in a Madisonian democracy, and that is you let the federal courts decide. Sometimes you don't win, but you don't create secret courts where there's no opposing counsel and no meaningful appeal. That's not the rule of law. And I think the reason the White House wants this so desperately— is that they're afraid that finally a court is going to say what many experts have said, that the president didn't have the authority and that he may have committed a crime over 30 times. And then people like Senator Specter are going to face questions of, why didn't you ever investigate whether the president committed crimes? And what have you been doing for the last few years?
1: All right. Jonathan, thank you very much. It's my great pleasure. Jonathan Turley is a professor of public interest law at George Washington University.
0: Still obscured by the city, the towers of glass reflected your coming, silhouetted on blink as I watched, did I close my
6: eyes?
2: Nick uh, Bichinich, who is the director and producer of Shadow Company, joins us
7: now. Nick, how you doing, man? How you doing, hey? Pretty good, pretty good.
1: You guys actually just premiered in D.C. last night?
7: Uh, yes, we did, actually. Well, is that last night? You know what? The time zone has a funny way of playing with my <laughs> sense of where I am. Yes, it was. It was, in fact, Tuesday night. We had a screening on Tuesday at the E Street Theater, mm-hmm. and we also had another one on Capitol Hill, which was, well, fascinating for me. I'd never been inside those buildings. And uh, we had an interesting time with a number of different uh, members of Congress and Senate.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Nick, listen. I gotta ask you seventeen different questions. But first, we gotta set up what this documentary is for people. When you say documentary, of course, some people zone out, and they, you know. And I was a little concerned about: is it gonna be dry? Then I saw the trailer and knocked my socks off. It's a badass trailer you got here. And shoot, we're a video show too. And it's perfect because uh, it's all audio as well. You could he- totally understand it on the radio. Let's play the trailer for everybody for Shadow Company, and then come back and talk about it. Cool. All right. Here we go. Broadcasting from
7: an undisclosed location. Freedom Radio on 107.7 FM, Baghdad. For those of you who don't already know, I quit the job at the law firm and I'm now working for a private security company in Iraq. I'm on a six-on, three-off rotation. Six weeks on, three weeks off. The contract is huge. 200 men doing post-protection tasks, or PSD as the Americans call it. There are swarms of other firms of private contractors all over the place. Some complete cowboy outfits. But this one is fairly sharp, so I'm not too worried about getting killed. I'm currently tasked at the Baghdad office working out of a villa in the green zone, where the CPA, that's the Coalition Provisional Authority, is set up shop. The city on the whole is in ruins, but it doesn't seem all that dangerous right now. Allahu Akbar!
2: Bush has created the ultimate Wild West scenario in
7: Iraq. If you've got a gun and you're for hire, there's, there's work for you. mercenary is somebody who goes and fights and gets paid for it. Private military firms are the corporate evolution of the age-old mercenary trade.
4: If someone wants to go and overthrow a desk park government, they're going to be part push to get the right type of guys, because most of those guys are actually working in Iraq. You put civilian contractors, guns, drugs, diamonds, arms embargoes, gold in the same scenario, you can mix that up into quite a nice little recipe for a disaster.
0: The CPA
2: specifically stated that contractors don't fall under Iraqi law.
7: If you look at it from the Iraqi point of view, that means that contractors can operate with impunity.
2: I would not work for a criminal entity and obviously that it's my call whether that entity is criminal or, or, or not. You tell people you yell inch it you know back. If they don't see the gun you may have to make contact with that vehicle to let it know that it needs to move out of the way. If they don't stop then the second burst goes into the engine. If they continue to come then the third one goes into the driver. Did you hit his car or did you shoot in front of him? I shot in front of him. It may have fucking ricocheted and hit his car but I do nothing different than does anybody when they go work for IBM or any other corporation in the world. Is that corporation Doing a service or a disservice to society. Man, if you believe they're doing a disservice and you still work for them, what does that make you? Well, there you have it. Uh, it's Shadow Company, and it's I and mean, it's certainly got plenty of action in it. Uh, but there are a great number of issues that arise out of that. We're talking to the producer and director, Nick Bechenich. Uh Nick, first of all, how many uh, private con- military contractors do we have in Iraq right now? The United States.
7: It's a fascinating question and the simple answer is that no one really knows and it's one of the key questions questions that we raise in this documentary. The Department of Defense has quoted the figure of 20,000. The real figure on the basis of the people that I've spoken to I believe is much closer to 70,000. So it's, it's a, they're the, largest, the second largest partner in the coalition. There is no other country that provides more troops than the private sector does, with the exception of the U.S.
2: So when you say the private sector, are they um, all from the United States, or actually are these uh, soldiers, these private soldiers, from all over the world?
7: Uh, the private soldiers are from all over the world. They are, there are a number of them that are American. there's a number that come from other modern Western armies, for example, um, there will be Brits there, there will be uh, Germans, there will be South Africans. But sure, there's a significant number of them that come from the u s What there's the overwhelming number of companies that are out there. Are either U.S. owned or U.K. owned, but th- even the U.S. companies can draw their employees from varying different nations.
2: So how do we, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, go ahead. No,
5: I was just going to ask as a follow up to that. Then, and I know as, as Jack mentions, there are a lot of different questions that are opened in the film, and I know that you address in the film different issues. But from an operational standpoint, then, having said what you've just said, what
3: rules and regulations that are sort of military uh, uh, rules and regs do these private armies have to follow, if any? In other words, when you see, if it's a private
7: army guy, does he have to
3: sort of answer the same rules and regs as the, as the, as the federal army guy?
7: It's a very interesting question. You know, the, the question is, I mean, we can expand on that even further and say, do they even have to follow their chain of command? You know, what happens if you're, if you're mixing private individuals who, yes, they're experienced soldiers, but they're essentially private individuals that are carrying weapons in a conflict zone, and you're a military commander you know that you can tell x amount of the guys who are underneath you in your chain of command what to do but can you tell these private guys what to do do you even know the answer is there is it's not 100 percent clear it appears that we are kind of learning as we go along so yes there are certain aspects of rules that have been developed that apply to these individuals but it's definitely not something that's known about you know for example what is known about is that local laws in iraq do not apply to these individuals so While I'm not suggesting for a second that they go around and shoot at civilians indiscriminately, the fact that they could and they could not be prosecuted under local law is an exceptionally dangerous thing. Like I said, they don't do that. That's not something they do. They are very professional soldiers by and large. But it's an exceptionally interesting environment when when you're sticking a profit-motivated corporation into the business of war in this way, especially when that profit-motivated corporation doesn't just – you know, collect garbage or deliver food, but actually has guys that carry guns in that environment.
2: We're talking to Nick he is the director and producer of Shadow Company, did a documentary about this. Nick, uh I there's two obvious follow-up questions here. One is in the military chain of command, if you don't follow orders, you're going to get go to the brig and you're going to get court-martialed. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, obviously, there is no court-martial. If you know, let's say that uh, Mark is the general of the Young Turks here, and he tells Jr. to do something, and if he doesn't do it, there's no, we don't send Jr. to jail. Worst-case scenario is okay, Jr. doesn't work here anymore. So uh, for those guys, if they go and do something, you know that their, quote-unquote, you know, boss is telling them not to do. That's a sad day for the boss, isn't it? And... I mean, they can just... Yeah,
7: it is. I mean, you know, th- there's a number of different arguments you can use here. For example, if you talk to the private military sector or their lobby group, their lobby group happens to be called the International Peace Operators Association. Ironic. Which, you
1: know, exactly,
7: well-aid. ironic. It's yet another funny thing. So then you've got, you've got mercenary, you've got soldier of fortune, you've got private security contractor, private military contractor, and now suddenly you have peace operator as well. If you talk to those guys, they'll throw acronyms at you. They'll say, oh, but you know the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act applies, or the Uniform Code of military justice is probably gonna apply. The fact is, these guys welcome regulation, but it's just it's not entirely clear. Even if you have put this regulation into place, as one of the people who we interviewed in the documentary and shadow company says, uh regulation doesn't really do a good job of preventing abuses. Regulation just makes it possible to prosecute the abuses once they happen. So the let fact me remains ask that I'm
2: sorry, Nick. Let me interrupt you to ask that then. Has any of these private contractors, the tens of thousands that have been there for now three years uh... has any of them have any of them been prosecuted for anything and under what law were they prosecuted if so? uh, not a single one not one out of the twenty to seventy thousand that were there for three years not one ever broke any law even though they're firing all the time right at that's people-
7: absurd on its face is the point right uh... exactly i mean you know as you pointed out it's highly likely that some laws were broken how serious those laws were nobody really knows and in the fog of war you would imagine that some of the laws that were broken Kind of you know they go along with the territory like you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs But the point is we need to set up every, one of the reasons why we made this is because we felt that the rules of war were changing right under us and if people didn't know more about who these guys were what they did and why it was a, it's a very dangerous and slippery slope because at some point, we just won't really have any understanding of who's fighting the wars for us, you know. And if the private sector takes on that kind of role, if the monopoly of the use of force is no longer in the nation state, well, we've got a very interesting scenario, and I don't think a lot of people are ready for it.
2: We're talking to Nick Bitchinich. He is the producer and director of Shadow Company, a documentary about these private uh, military contractors in uh, that we're using in Iraq. Anywhere from 20 to 70,000 of them. Nick, uh, let me bring up two bad case scenarios here. One is, let's say, you know, we finally get out of Iraq and we we decide to not invade Iran, which would be a relief. And we're done with most of the wars in the Middle East. Now, here you have, let's use the number 50,000, just pick a number in the middle. Here you have an army of 50,000 guys who are used to getting paid and paid handsomely to conduct warfare. Uh, Is there any chance that they would then go work for other people who would be in the market for such uh, warriors? Uh, Maybe a, a warlord in Africa, or perhaps one in Afghanistan, or perhaps in Central Asia. Is there a concern that this could get out of control and that we would have a private army that is basically for hire?
7: this is one of the traditional concerns with the use of um, private soldiers for hire. This has happened in the past. I mean, there is a historical precedent. You know, during the during the, during the medieval wars between England and France, uh, what happened is there were so many English soldiers left around in Europe when, when the war eventually ended that they self-organized into these roving companies called the free companies, and they went around and essentially were hired, hiring themselves out to the highest bidder. So it's often it 's often convenient for people to point at that and say, "Well, you know this could really happen realistically, I think it's highly unlikely it 's certainly something that 's conceivable, but the the caliber of professionalism that 's involved in in these private military companies today makes it in my opinion, and again, you know i 'm just a filmmaker here. one of the things I 'm trying to do is raise a lot of questions rather than provide convenient answers for them um, one of, I think it's highly unlikely that uh, Significantly unethical decisions will be made by these companies simply because it's not good business. You know these companies yeah. are be- have become multi-million dollar organizations. If they if they make a one really bad move, they're hardly unlikely to be allowed to make another good move again because they'll be. Deserved.
2: Nick, let me just dis- uh, you know look. You did the documentary, you know the facts, but yes. that's never stopped me before. Let me disagree <laughs> with you, uh, and and I'll tell you why. Number one, that's all fine and good. Their reputation on the line, but if there's no wars and they're not in business anyway. They got to, you know, these guys are in the business of war. So somebody's got to hire them. I mean, if we're in a permanent state of war here in the United States and we're constantly using private companies, then, yes, uh, your argument is perfectly logical. But if we're out of the business of war, roughly speaking then they're going to need to get hired by somebody. But second of all, and more importantly I think, sure, Blackwater doesn't want to get hired by Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, warlord in Afghanistan to fight against, you know, uh, Karzai who's backed by the US. For example. Mm-hmm. But now that they're all out of business, maybe not all 50,000, but he can't put together 500 people, 2,000 people who used to work for Blackwater and are now unemployed and whose main job is to get paid uh, to to fight wars. You think that's not possible? Oh, no.
7: I, I think that's completely possible. I just don't. I think it's something that very quickly transcends the corporate structures. What you're essentially getting at is if we have a huge amount of unemployed professional soldiers, does it mean that all sorts of daring do can happen? Well, you know, the answer is obviously yes. We, can, we only need to look back as far as Margaret Thatcher's son, Mark Thatcher's financial involvement in the attempted at overthrow of Equatorial Guinea, which happened in 2000, late 2004. You know, here's a scenario in which guys who were working as private security contractors in Iraq, at least, to mean that it's very, very little exact detail is known about who these guys were, but what is known is at least three of the individuals that were on the plane, that were arrested as mercenaries in Zimbabwe, they were en route to Equatorial Guinea to attempt an overthrow of the country, had previously, as recently as three months before that point, worked as private security contractors in Iraq. So the fact is, there are numerous unscrupulous individuals in this field who will work for whatever's going. I would say, however, that on the basis of the people that I met, one of the things that was fascinating to me is the overwhelming majority had a very strong head on their shoulders, and they were not, they were not the, the stereotypical mercenaries that many media would have you imagine. And uh, that was certainly one of the things that we tried to get across in this piece. We tried to make a very balanced portrayal of who these guys were, as opposed to jump on the stereotypes and say, oh, my God, this is all evil. It should be destroyed.
2: We're talking to Nick Bacinich, He is the director of Shadow Company. It's a documentary about these private contractors or otherwise known as mercenaries in Iraq. Let me ask you a different question real quick. Uh, So when we say we have 130,000 troops in Iraq, that number is totally wrong. The reality is we have you know, in your estimation, nearly 200,000 soldiers, just 130,000 happened to be actual uh, government-paid soldiers, and 70,000 happened to be private soldiers in Iraq.
7: Yeah, it's a very interesting way of looking at it. I mean, you know, many, many would argue that the idea of the U.S. government outsourcing aspects of the pointy bit of warfare, in other words, the weapon-carrying stuff, is essentially a straightforward example of foreign policy by proxy. You know, when you do something like that, yes, technically speaking, they don't fall under the U.S. Army, so they don't have to be counted as troops. Technically speaking, George Bush doesn't have to go out and meet the, um, you know, the flag-covered uh, coffins of the guys that die if they're private military contractors. But the fact is a lot of the Americans that are out there that are working in these private positions see themselves as a logical extension of the U.S. Army, and, that's, and, and they have the same ideology.
2: And uh, finally, do you have a an, an number or an idea of a number of, uh, of those uh, from the private army that have uh, died or have been injured?
7: Yes, there are only semi-official figures on this. The last time I looked into the figures was about six months ago, and the number was at 275.
2: Okay, so that would add to our official body count as well, but it's not in our official body count. No, We say 2,500-some-odd no. kids, U.S. soldiers have died in Iraq, but in reality, it's actually 2,800 or so if you add the private contractors.
7: Not all of the 250 are Americans, but yes, I, your point is still valid.
2: Right,
6: okay.
7: I well, would like to say one more thing, though, which is sure. something you said at the beginning, uh, which is about documentaries and how they're traditionally done. One key thing for me with making this film was that I wanted to make a documentary that I wanted to watch. You know, you watch these documentaries, and I often am guilty of this myself, is I watch these documentaries, and, you know, you hear the voice in a voiceover, and it's like, in 1965, the second time the lions crossed into the Kalahari, and you fall asleep. You know, <laughs> no one wants to see that sort of stuff. So it was very important for me to make something that was entertaining as well as educational. And it certainly seems to have, you know, caught a lot of people's attention, including yourselves. So when, you wa- when you watch the trailer, you kind of, you want to see this kind of information presented in this way. So we wanted to make something modern. And... Uh, We've ended up electing to to self-distribute the DVD at this stage. So www.shadowcompany.com is where people can both see the trailer and find out about how to order the DVD.
2: So shadowcompany.com.
3: Shadowcompany.com.
2: All right. And, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. We could do a whole other interview on your background, and maybe we will one day. But uh, we're out of time today. Thanks again.
3: This podcast is a member of the Progressive Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, go on over to newmediarevolution.org, where you'll find other like-minded podcasts and soon blogs and vlogs. Progressive Podcast Network at newmediarevolution.org. Variety is the spice of life.